0: People are different. They have different backgrounds. They have different interests, different ways of looking at things, different ways of hearing the same thing. My family's like that. If you were to sit down with my family and say the name Igor, you would get different reactions. My military minded son would go, Igor Sikorsky, the pioneer of the helicopter. My musician wife and other musicians would go Igor Stravinsky and the Rite of Spring. And then we have a few members of my family who are Mel Brooks fans <laughs> and are going to go, it's pronounced Igor <laughs> and what hump <one-ump. laughs> That's my family. We're all different. Each of us spend time with people who are different than we are and vastly different from the Christian fellowship we enjoy here. We enjoy fellowship here as brothers and sisters in Christ, and we meet together as a church, and we sing, and we speak, and we hear familiar words and subjects that we love, but may sound very, very strange to people outside of our Christian culture. In many ways, we live in a post-Christian world, where the things familiar to us are strange to them. I grew up in an era where the community would never think of having events on a Sunday. Even in Greenville, 40 years ago, Sunday mornings were relatively quiet because most of the population was in church. You could probably drive Woodruff Road if you skipped church and not have any traffic. It's different today. As we seek to take the gospel to people outside the walls of our building, I want us this morning to look at Paul when he visits the city of Athens, and see how he engaged the culture of a great city to share the gospel and learn how we can engage people who are very different than we are with the message of the gospel. Paul used the culture he was in to inject the gospel of Jesus Christ into the conversation. So if you'll turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 17, New Testament, it's the fifth book, right after the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, it's the book that gives us the history of the start of the local church, Acts chapter 17. Now, ministering to different kinds of people was not new to Paul. He would write to the Corinthian church in his first letter to them about what, it, what he did as he adjusted to the people around him. I'm going to read what is, I think, an interesting paraphrase of what he wrote. He said, even though I am free of the demands and expectations of everyone, I voluntarily become a servant to any and to all in order to reach a wide range of people, whether they were religious or non-religious, whether they were meticulous moralist or proud immoralist, whether they were defeated and demoralized, whoever. I didn't take on their way of life. I kept my bearings in Christ, but I entered their world and tried to experience things from their point of view. I became just about every sort of servant there is in my attempts to lead those I met to Jesus Christ. And I did all this because of the gospel. I didn't want to just talk about it. I wanted to be in on it. Paul arrives in Athens. He's been in the city of Philippi. He's been in Thessalonica. He's been in Berea in Asia Minor. He's left his friends Silas and Timothy behind in Berea, and he goes ahead alone to the city of Athens. Acts chapter 17. Let's look first of all at just verses 16 and 17. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. Athens was one of the greatest cities of ancient Greece. It is the home of the philosophers Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. Even under the rule of the Roman Empire, it continued to be a center for the arts and culture and philosophy. Even today, millions of people from around the world go to Athens to see what's there. But instead of being filled with wonder at the glories of Athens and being a tourist, Paul's provoked. He's disturbed. It bothers him to see a city that's full of idols and idol worshippers. Now, how full? Listen, the Greek historians would write, one of them would write, that there were more gods in the city of Athens than there were in the whole country of Greece. One would even sarcastically say that if you went to Athens, it was easier to find a god than it was to find a man. Every place you turned, there was an idol or a temple to an idol. Up in the top of a hill, there was the Parthenon, a uh, massive structure still there today, dedicated to the goddess Athena. Now, this troubled Paul, not only because being born and raised Jewish, he'd have a natural aversion to idol worship, but because as he wrote to the Corinthian church, he said people that sacrificed to idols were actually making offerings to demons and not to God. And that disturbed him. It troubled him to the point of taking action. He had to do something. What's he to do? Thankfully, he didn't march up and down the street with a protest sign. Thankfully, he didn't break into the temples and start busting things up or take his apostolic hammer up and down the street busting idols. Instead, what he did was he told people about Jesus. We live in a world like Athens. People around us seem to worship and value everything but the God who made them and live in happy ignorance of Jesus Christ. Paul was in a city full of idols. We live in a city full of churches. We could say the same thing Paul said. I perceive you're very religious. Anyway, we could be content and comfortable and entertained by the culture and beauty around us and just figure, you know, it's just none of our business. We'll keep the good news to ourselves. Uh, That's okay. They go their way. I'll go my way. Or we could argue and fight and vent our anger against their sin. Or we could be what Jesus is called to be, called us to be. We could be his witnesses and tell people about him. First, he goes to the synagogue. This is where the Jewish people met. Not a temple. It's just a gathering place where Jews met regularly. And Paul goes to the synagogue. This is his normal practice of taking the gospel to the Jew first. Here he'd find people who believed in one God and had a knowledge of the Old Testament with whom he had a lot of things in common. He had the right and freedom to speak here because of his Jewish heritage and he used that right. And along with the Jews, there were non-Jewish devout persons who believed the same things and were allowed to gather in the synagogue with the Jews. So he goes there and we can expect that he did what he did in every synagogue, went there and preached the gospel. There's no report of any response or anything. But he does due diligence to go to where the religious people are, people with whom he has something in common. But did you notice that every day he goes to the marketplace? The Greek word for marketplace is agora. Um, I used to say that the agora was like the mall, but the malls are dead today, so... We'll get rid of that illustration this morning. Uh, the agora was the community center of activity. Everybody was in the agora. They gathered around every day to talk and hang out and spend their leisure time. And if we're to believe historians, they had a lot of leisure time. They sat there and interacted with each other all day long. You could see you could see everybody you knew. You could see strangers. You could talk with strangers. And that was the thing to do, was hang around in the marketplace. Now, Paul knew enough about their culture to converse with them and introduce Jesus into the conversation. The atmosphere there would be similar to what we'd find in a casual restaurant or a coffee shop, maybe what we're sitting next to somebody in an airplane or at a waiting room, someplace where you just strike up casual conversation. He knew the art of turning a casual conversation into a gospel conversation. Now, while he does this, he's evidently overheard by another group who want to hear a little more, the philosophers. Verse 18 says, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. There are two groups of philosophers. Now, there are all kinds of philosophers in Athens. He just mentions two here. And I'm going to be very simplistic in this because I know absolutely nothing about Greek philosophy. All I know about the Epicureans is we used to eat at a restaurant called the Epicurea, and they had great sandwiches. Religion I could get in on. (laughs) But anyway... The Epicureans were a school of philosophy that taught the purpose of life was freedom and the pursuit of pleasure. Their catechism would read, man's chief end is to enjoy himself. Have fun. This world is to be enjoyed. Get pleasure wherever you can. That's how to live and to live life at its fullest. On the other hand, there were the Stoics. This school of philosophy believed in self-discipline and self-denial. The chief end of man is self-control. They believed that their intellect was above everything. In other words, if we can't understand it, it can't possibly be true. Neither one of them gave much thought to life after death. Their focus is how to make the most out of the life they have now. Now, a curious bunch, they listened to Paul, and they found what he said strange. They call him a babbler. The, the Greek word here is seed picker. Uh, they're listening to him, and they, it's, a, it's kind of a disparaging term about somebody who talks nonsense. Uh, but it's interesting to listen to them, even though it makes no sense at all. Maybe some of you have seen the TED talk about how to talk for 15 minutes about absolutely nothing. That's what they're calling Paul. This guy's really interesting. I don't know what he's saying, but it's really interesting. They call him a seed picker. They didn't know what he was talking about. As a matter of fact, when Paul talks about Jesus and the resurrection, they mistake the Greek word for resurrection, which is anastasis, as a proper name. So when he says Jesus and anastasis, they think he's talking about two more gods to add to the bunch that's in Athens. He's a center forth of strange gods, Jesus and Anastasis. There will be people who don't understand our Christian language. Okay, Ron's coming up with another story. One of the interesting jobs I had when I first became a Christian was hand-digging graves in old cemeteries. There are cemeteries in Maine Where you can't get in a backhoe and you have to literally go in and hand dig the grave. And I worked that job with a guy named Gus. I have all kinds of stories. Any day you want to buy me a cup of coffee, I'll be glad to tell you all kinds of grave digging stories. But we're digging a grave one day and I I want to witness to Gus. And I'm a new Christian and I'm shoveling away and I paused and I looked at Gus and I said, Gus, are you saved And Gus looked at me and said, from what? And I realized he had no idea what I was talking about. Gus had never been in church. He'd never heard Christian language. Save from what? I just had to be quiet and say, I need to understand who I'm talking to. They need to understand what I'm saying. It would be like if you took your rudimentary Spanish, if you have any, and you went to Mexico and decided you wanted to be a witness and you went up and down the streets and in your rudimentary Spanish asked everybody if they knew Jesus. And they all came back and said they did. And you're excited because you found so many Christians and then you found out that he really owned the market on the corner. People sometimes just don't understand what we're saying. Now, they're going to give Paul an opportunity to speak publicly to a group. And they invite him to a public forum called the Areopagus. Verses 19. Verse 19. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, wherefore, what these things mean. Know all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling and hearing something new. The Areopagus, that's a Greek word for Mars Hill, and I'm probably going to say Mars Hill more than I'm going to say Areopagus because Areopagus just doesn't roll off my tongue as easily as Mars Hill does. Anyway, this is a small hill covered with stone seats where people, it's still there today, where people met outside to have trials, hold councils entertain public speakings. Today, the featured act is Paul. They were curious to hear something they'd never heard before. Demosthenes, the famous Greek orator, says that in Athens, a typical greeting on the street was, hey, have you heard anything new? We've heard a lot of stuff over and over and over again. Have you heard anything new? You know, it's like fathers telling stories to their kids. My sons have all numbered mine. Here goes dad with story number 17. Don't you have a new one, Dad? No, I don't. (laughs) Another story. Do you have anything new? Is there anything new? Paul had something new. These people are going to hear something new. And Paul gets his opportunity. He accepts the invitation to Mars Hill. They've offered him a full and fair hearing in a public forum where he's going to be the guest speaker. Now, while he speaks to a crowd, our opportunity may be different. Maybe be an icebreaker at work where they ask you to share something with a group that's important to you. It may be with a stranger in a coffee shop, the person sitting next to you in an airplane, the person in a doctor's waiting room. What Paul does here is give us some guidelines to follow as we introduce people to the gospel and to Jesus. First of all, he's prepared. He knows his audience. He's watched them. More importantly, he's listened to them. When we engage other people, it's really important to use our ears and listen to them. Hear their story. Find out where they're from. Find out what their background is. Paul has studied these people. He's watched them. He's listened. There are people who are religious and intelligent, but they know nothing about the real, true God. Now Paul, by his own admission, is not a dynamic speaker, but he knows the basic rules of public speaking. He knows his audience. He certainly knows his subject. He's respectful and he's brief. If you read Paul's personal testimonies in the book of Acts, every one of them is under three minutes. And this speech he's going to give on Mars Hill is under three minutes. Paul goes up to Mars Hill. People are sitting in the seats and he has a chance to speak. He starts in verse 22 by saying, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Nice complimentary term. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. He begins by saying, he's observed that they're very religious. He uses their culture as his starting point. He then introduces them to his topic by mentioning their altar to the unknown God. Now they had many objects of worship. There was a huge list of Greek gods for everything you could imagine. There were gods you could pray to for love, wind, family feuds, music, war, beekeeping, medicine, vegetation. And those are just the ones beginning with A. Now, the unknown god may have been their god for anything not listed in the other list just something they may not have covered but they have this monument to the unknown God and he is going to tell them about the God they admit not knowing the only real true and living God now the question is where should he start another story When I got out in the secular workforce, I worked at a place called IKEA. Great place to work. Cool. And there were a lot of young twenty to 30s there, and uh, I looked at it as a mission field. My first year there, I was pressing to get a Sunday off for Easter. Getting Sunday off in retail is hard. I was getting somebody to try to change a shift with me or whatever, and a couple of my coworkers at break said, what's the big deal about Easter? Opportunity. So I told him about Jesus dying on the cross for our sin, rising the third day, and we celebrated his resurrection on Easter. And I discovered it was all new to them. I'm working with people in their twenties and thirties who had never been in church in their lives for anything. Wedding, funeral, nothing. Had no religious background. When I said, you know, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, their response was, yeah, sure. We're born that way. We are, we're all sin. We all do things wrong. Can't help it. That's just the way we are. No big deal. They didn't see sin as something bad. They saw something, sin as something very common. And they started asking questions. Where did sin come from? Why is it so bad? They didn't see rebellion. They didn't see sin as a rebellion against God, especially the God who made them. I started talking about God making them, God being their creator. And one of them one day just interrupted me and goes, that's why you people are so big on creation, isn't it? That's why creation is such a big deal with you. And I said, what do you mean big deal? He said, because if God made me, God owns me. Paul started at creation. He didn't start with all of sin and come short of the glory of God. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Confess with your mouth. He started where they needed to be at creation. Look at verse 24. God is the one, the God I'm declaring to you, is the one who made everything. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth. He starts with creation. This contradicts the Epicureans because they believe that matter was eternal. Matter had always been there. Nobody created matter. It was always there. It also contradicted the Stoics who were pantheists. They believed that God was in everything and that everything was God, that all material things were God. God is also, he said, the ruler, the Lord, over everything he's made. The implication of this simple statement to those hearers Is God made you and God owns you and he is your ruler. This unknown God that you're talking about, he is your creator. He's the one who made you. Then he declares that God is everywhere. He said, The God who made, verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. I can almost see him here uh, saying, He does not live in temples and raising his hand toward the Parthenon, which is just above where he's standing. He does not live in temples like that big one on the top of the hill here. He's not living on pedestals that you have scattered around the city here. He does not live in the other temples that you have in this city. He is everywhere. He's a self-sufficient God. Verse 25, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Part of idol worship, part of the worship of false gods, is they worship a God who needs something. He may need physical gifts. He may need sacrifices. He may need you to do certain things to get on his good side. In Greek mythology, if you wanted a good crop, you went to the god of uh, agriculture and you gave a sacrifice. And you left it there. And the next morning it was gone. Somebody had come and taken it during the night, but we won't talk about that. Uh, god needs us. I remember a preacher saying one time, he'd heard the phrase, God has no hands but my hands. If the only hands God hands has are mine, he's in trouble. God has need of nothing. Indeed, he is the giver of everything. He gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. I read that verse and all I thought of was 1 Corinthians 4.7. What do you have that you weren't given? What do you have that God didn't? give you god is a self-sufficient god who needs nothing and then verse 26 he is the creator of all men and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the all, on the face of the earth having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of the dwelling place all mankind descended from the first man he made adam One number of translations will say that all men are of one blood. They're all related. Now this would strike in the face of the Athenians because the Athenians believed they had been born out of their own ground and therefore they were superior to the other people around them. This is a hammer to racism and racial superiority. To use this any other way, is heresy. We're all one. Why are we different? Why do we live in different places? Why are we from different places? Why do we look differently? That's the way God made us. Because He made us different. But we're all related. He's the creator of all men. And he has a purpose for those men. In Verses 27 and 28, he has a purpose for mankind. That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. Or even as some of your own poets have said, for we are his offspring. He created us to seek him. Some translations would say of this, to grope after him. He made us and then He gave evidence all around us that He exists. We just came back from Hawaii. You look at the creation there and you go, I went. My Father made this. God made all this. And to say, well, it took millions and millions of years. God made the world around us and He says, seek me here it is look after me i'm not far away there's plenty of proof around look at the stars look at the universe look at nature look around there's proof that i exist seek after me i will be found paul even quotes their own po- their own poets to buttress his point god wants man to seek him he quotes their own poets to illustrate it he says he's responsible for our existence for our life, for our breath. Their own poets admitted it. Their own poets admitted, we are God's offspring. He is responsible for our lives. So with that buildup of these simple facts laid out in a brief time, Paul concludes his speech with a logical challenge in verse 29. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think That the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Just one note here. Notice Paul says, we ought not to think. That's one thing I've learned in preaching that I really enjoy. When you're confronting sin, not to say, you ought not to think. We ought not to think because I'm just as prone to it as you are. We ought not to think that God is a material object. The times of, verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Since this is the God who made you, And since this is the God who is everywhere, and since this is the God who needs nothing, why should you think that he's made of material substances like gold, silver, or stone? Why should you think that you can make an image of him? Why should you think you can create him out of a substance or create him in your own mind? This God is real. Then he says, up to this moment, God has overlooked your sin of ignoring him. The King James Version says he's winked at it. Okay, you've been okay till now. You've been trundling along in your blindness. You haven't known, but now here's the truth. Now you have a choice. Now you have no excuse. Now you need to repent of your sin of ignoring the God who made you and owns you. Now you need to repent of your sin of ignoring the God who made you and owns you. Why should you repent? He says because judgment is coming. Not a trial, but the passing of a sentence for your guilt of not worshiping your creator and king. And he sums it up with this. The one who will judge you is the one I was talking about in the marketplace. The one who died and rose from the dead. Jesus. Jesus is God's appointed judge. That God you don't know? Jesus is the God you don't know. What will you do with Jesus? What would you do? Now there's a response. Verses 32. He delivers this punch at the end. And now when they heard of the resurrection of dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Europagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. There were some who mocked Paul. They made fun of him. They jeered at what they didn't understand. They laughed at him. The gospel is foolishness to unbelievers. They laughed at him. If I'm Paul, I'm going, you're laughing at me. The last place I was in, they threw me in jail. (laughs) You know. What do you mean, laugh at me? But you know, that makes us people are going to think I'm weird. They're going to think I'm strange. It's okay. It'll happen. They'll think you're strange. They'll jeer at you. And there were some who procrastinated. Now, they're curious. But they want to talk later. Uh, see me later. Talk to me later. Now, we know that often when people say to that, that to us, they're really saying, I don't want to talk right now. Call me later, and their line's going to be busy, and they're not going to respond to uh, your messages, and they're just shutting you off. But sometimes that's a future opportunity. Maybe they want to talk to you privately. Maybe they want to talk to you in a different situation. But if they say they want to talk to you later, take them with their word. Say, remember you want to talk to me? Let's talk some more about what we were talking about. And there were some who joined with him and believed. As Paul leaves Dionysius the aeropagite He's the leader of activities on Mars Hill. I don't know whether he's the chief janitor or the manager of the place. But anyway, he's a big wig at Mars Hill. He comes along. There were others, including a woman named Damaris. There's results of the preaching of the word. There's results. Sure, they're scattered. Sure, they're different. Sure, there's mocking. And sure, there are procrastinators. But they're also believers. We can engage the world around us in gospel conversations. We can. We should engage the world around us in gospel conversations. But you know something? We're commanded to engage the world around us in gospel conversations. We may find excuses. Uh, I don't have the gift of evangelism. We talk about what we love. We talk about what excites us. We talk about what we're interested in. We can tell others about Jesus. Let's be verbal representatives of Jesus to the people around us, no matter how pagan they are. It's God's work. We're tools in his hands. We plant, we labor, but God gives the increase.